listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little bloodsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers are gay. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Whoever you are out there in the wide world, thank you so much for lending me your ears. I really do appreciate it. Now, yesterday I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Dave Butterworth. Butters, as I like to call him, and so do many of you, uh, is a, well, I mean, he is a force, a human force. So that in my eyes, is a, you know, a, a, a whole, right? You can't be human and a force without having vulnerabilities and ups and downs, twists and turns in, in a full life. Um, now, Butters came over and Butters and I hadn't met, but we'd been chatting for quite a long time um, through, through the platforms and um, and I felt like I, I knew Butters because, you know, I, I'd been chatting to him so often on various topics um, over, over quite a while. And so when Butters came over yesterday, it was awesome. It was, so, it was so nice to put his human body in front of mine and, and, and talk, you know, and, and catch up. And, and, it was, and it's a scary thing to do is just come over because we were going to have a coffee ages ago and it just didn't work out, you know. And I was like, well, we could just do it and just, and just throw it straight into the horse's mouth, have a chat, you know. And, th- and that's a brave and scary thing to do. But Butters is no stranger to the microphone. He has been a – he's been on – um, in various capacities on the radio for Triple R since 93. I mean, that is a really long time. So he is a professional when it comes to the microphone. He's also in a band called The Double Agents um, and, and a performer. So, you know, like Butters, is, there's no stranger to this. But still, to come over and talk to me, someone that we knew each other but we didn't have not sat in front of each other, and to have a, a conversation about oneself is, is is brave. Is brave. So thank you, Butters. Thanks so much for coming over and 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 throwing down, man. Like I had a really really good time chatting, and I know we'll be catching up again soon. Um, we're going to do that dinner in Lawn. Um, but so yeah, look, I, I'm not going to go on too much, uh, and I'll let you go on a journey with Butters's and mine conversation. Uh, it's you know because he ha- he is on a journey as we all are, but he his journey's pretty serious. Um, and so anyway, I, I just don't want to lead you. You know, I just let you have an experience. That's how I, I like to see a film. If I'm going to see a film, I, and I, know, I just don't want to know anything about it, I would rather go in and see a film that I, I know nothing about and have an experience. Let it wash over me and, and be thinking about it. You know, for better or worse later on. Um, but if I go into something with uh, a preconceived idea of what I'm going to see and I have unfair expectations on it, quite often I'm disappointed or, uh, you know, like it just doesn't, I, I, I don't know, I just, or I'm waiting for a moment and it just doesn't get there and I just, I, I, you know, so anyway, I'm not going to crap on too much. Butters is awesome. Butters, I love you and thank you so much for coming over. Um, 
So also, no, I'm just going to give the double agents a plug. They're playing at the um, the Northcote Social Club on the 14th of July. They've got an album launch, um, the best bits so far. Uh, so if you can make it to the uh, the Northcote Social Club on the 14th, which I'm going to try and be there, uh, yeah, head on down and, and see Butters' band, the double agents. They're getting back together. They've been back together on and off. So that's uh, awesome. Um Okay, this is a quick little break, just a plug, a magazine that I think is really important to the coastline, um, and it's called The Great Ocean Quarterly. Now, you can go to www.greatocean.com.au and get a pre-order now of their next issue. Help support the great people behind The Great Ocean Quarterly. That is Mark Willett, Mick Sowry, and Jock Sarong, who, who put out an amazing publication. The last one they did was, I think, in 2020, and um, it, it was it's an amazing magazine. I still have it in my house. So if you want to get over there to thegreatocean.com.au, and put in a pre-order now the boys would love it okay yeah so anyway i this is one thing that i did when i I went to the footy on saturday night and i haven't been up to the mcg for for ages like i don't know how long since i've been in the g and i and i I was actually quite excited a mate of mine was like he threw it out there to a few of us do we want to go and i was just like you know i haven't seen these guys in ages and i was yeah i'll go i'll go that'd be cool have a pie you know check it out and i forgot the the atmosphere at the g you know like when you're up there and you're looking down and it's just the raw and you can feel it you can feel it it goes through you it's it's quite quite the thing i i really hadn't i'd forgotten and maybe covid has made me super sensitive to like that was the biggest group of people that i've been around in quite some time and i was like whoa um but that was cool uh and so anyway, I was driving home. This is this is a little thing that happened to me. And um and in my car, uh I've got a, a you know a, a new secondhand car, blah blah blah. And it came with a UHF radio. And that's like, you know, the trucky 104 big buddy. And so when I got it, I turned it on. I was listening to some trucks, you know, listening to dudes having a chat. And then uh you know, I'm trying to work out what channels, what channel, what's a good channel to listen to and everyone's like channel 40, channel 40, that's the one that's uh, all the chatters on, you know. So I was driving home after the footy and it was late. You know, I didn't get home till quarter to 1 or something and I was driving down the 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 freeway, highway down back down to Torquay and uh, I thought, oh, I'll see if there's any trucks out there. My mate Redo was like, yeah, be, there, there should be trucks. You know, you got to play around with the squelchy thing and you, you'll get some chatter. And so, you know, turned it on and played around with it. Fucking did nothing. Donuts. And he was like, well, you, do you know how to do a radio check? This is when we're at the G. I was telling him, I don't hear anyone. So I did a, a radio. He's like, do a radio check, you know, check it in. And I was like, I, I was half. I was half listening. And so I get on the the, C, the radio, I pick it up and I'm like, uh, this is a radio check. I'm just wondering if um, anyone out there can hear me. And with, without breaking beat, I let go of the clicker and it just comes back, yeah, fucking oath. And then just bang, bop, gone. And I went, oh, okay, thanks. Thanks for that. And just silence all the way home. But it actually wasn't even, yeah, fucking oath. It was just, yeah, this is a radio check. I was wondering if anyone is out there. Fucking oath. I just lost it. Like, I, I was like, there wasn't, it couldn't have been more scripted, the, the lack of gap and then the silence afterwards. And 
It was just like someone was waiting for me to do that. Um, anyway, I don't know if you find that as amusing as I did at 12.30 at night on the on the highway alone in the rain. Um, but it certainly made me giggle. Anyway, um, look, I hope you're well out there. I hope you enjoy my chat with Butters. Um, and thanks for listening to The Rant. And I'll see you on the other side. Okay. A complete and total... I didn't even know cornflakes still existed. They do, and they taste exactly the same. Same box? Same box. Got a rooster? Got a rooster. <laughs> Which, yeah, same box. And I buy the big box, you know, so you just like... It's like when you go to the shops and you sort of feel embarrassed because you've bought 20 rolls of shit tickets, you know. It's the same thing. You've got this giant <laughs> box of cornflakes, like... It with feels, a 30% extra yeah, free or something. Yeah, and my one kilo tin of Milo, yeah. which has got, you know, extra, extra. Yeah. Know. I'll oh. buy the bags of Milo now. Didn't know they came in bags. Yeah, they, they come in a value bag. I'm going to do that next. Because <laughs> then you can tip it into your tin at home. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm only recently back on the Milo, like, so, last couple of months. Yeah, you're blasting sugar. It's heavy, though. I'm into it. So this is nostalgic to your childhood. Yes. Now, tell us, um, like, your early day childhood. My early... Oh, yeah, so, weird. like, were you always eating cornflakes as a kid? No, not really. No, what, More wheat bix Yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't eat my Hot like, milk? Yeah, hot milk, yeah. Winter, that was, like, special. Yeah, it's very special. And they're still... They're exactly the same. But when you eat them now, it's like, oh, it's a bit stodgy, but... Cornflakes were special. Cocoa Pops were special. You yeah, know, when Cocoa Pops are really special. Yeah, when you'd go on one of those family road trips in the motel and you'd get the little boxes. You know, oh, my God, they broke open in they, half. The box broke in the ver- half. The very, very, very... Variety? Variety pack. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's, um... Yeah, that kind of stuff. I love that shit, you know. Yeah. And I know you like talking about all that sort of nostalgia stuff because I got, like, when I was listening to the Dicko one and he was talking about watching Mad Max. Oh, my God. Now, he's... a few years older than me, I'm 50. Yeah. But I remembered when I lived in Mount Dandenong. Yeah. That was kind of part of my childhood. There was one guy and he had um, the car. But he, and he would drive... The Mad Max car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The it Interceptor. wasn't the one, but it was like a replica. A knockoff, yeah. And this was like in the 80s. Yeah. So, and we were like, you know, 14, 15 years old. And every now and then you'd see him drive past the school bus stop and just like... You know, 20 or 30 frothing teenage boys. Like, oh, my God. Like, wow. But he had to have a pillowcase. It's just the memory. He had to put a pillowcase on the lights, on the police lights. Oh, on the police lights. Obviously, because it's illegal to impersonate a police officer. But that was like a huge thrill. When when Digo was talking about Mad Max, I'm just like, oh, my God, I love that guy. And he just drove past in the car randomly. Yeah, you know, yeah, every yeah, couple yeah, of months, yeah, yeah. you just hear it coming and it's... Everyone at the bus stop just stopped. Ford V8. Yeah. yeah. Guys cared. Girls didn't give a shit. What's that? And you're like, every bloke uh, just stopped. Deceptor. Yeah. See a deceptor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my... When you so, talk about Mad Max, I was like... Oh, oh no. So, Mount Danny Nong, tell me you know firsthand as a child. Was there a uh, a UFO vibe in that zone? Yeah. Yeah. There was also a strong... Um, American Army, because I think they had a base up there. And I went to school at the base of Mount Dandenong. And there was like a clearing patch in the side of the hill, like the trees had clearly gone. And the rumor was that um, that uh, 
an aircraft had crashed into there, like an American aircraft. And the, also the other rumour was that the American Air Force had had um, Panthers as their mascots, which I think is a common rumour for wherever there's been an American Air Force base. So we would go out. This was, you know, like Rambo had come out, but we would go out dressed in like camo gear <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with a knife, you know, because yeah. we bought the... You could get it and it has the uh, fishing line yeah, yeah. and matches. <laughs> yep. We'd go out and I grew up with two Alsatians. So me and my mates would go out dressed in our camo gear trying to find the, pum- you know, the, yeah, the yeah. missing Pumas or Cougars or whatever, yeah, the yeah, Panthers, yeah. the yeah, yeah. American <laughs> Air Force had bought in. But it's a, it's a weird vibe, up, you know. It is. Up there in general. Do you know, uh, I don't know, I interviewed Joy Clark, who was part of the, um, she was at primary school when the UFO went past, uh, what's the area? Um, Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. It's the largest Australian UFO sighting. I don't know about that. in, In recorded history. And it's, oh, God damn. It's just Is it out that way? It's, she lives in the Dandenongs. And she went to school. It was just like she drove me to the school and the site where it all went down. And it was just inland of like Sandringham. Um, God, I'm having a mind blank. Okay. But it's called... Anyway, if you Google it, it's the biggest UFO sighting in Australian history. Teachers saw, students saw of two schools. Anyway, then film crews showed up. And the military showed up. She got, like, knocked on the door at home. What year was that? I think it was 50s. Okay, that sort of rings a bell because my dad lived in um, McKinnon, which is near Sandringham, and he told me once, and I've sort of forgotten it, but he told me once about, like, a um, it was like an alien sighting in McKinnon with, like, a coloured mist all over the ground, and they wandered wandered down as kids and were shut off and pushed back by the military who knows well this one was in the middle of the school day wow and one of them landed and she took me to this reserve near the school where it all went down and people showed up and uh told her dad if your daughter keeps talking about it you and he, he was he worked at an airport he was something to do with aviation and he had to stop talking about it because uh yeah, you know, they got spooked not a good thing no and then the if next, you're trying to the, hide it <laughs> yeah totally but then there was a teacher who also saw and he was told if you talk about this anymore you'll get uh we'll call you an alcoholic and you'll never be able to work wow. as a teacher again and he's all he, they've all come out now yeah and since because they're all older and they don't give a shit no no aliens just just looking for army stuff. And, we, and then when we got older, we went looking for weed plants, never found any. I Man, I used to do that too, yeah, yeah. trump off into the yeah, like... Think someone's got to have a plantation yeah. here. And what would we do if we found them? Like two weedy 15-year-old kids come across yeah. a bunch of criminals growing weed. They, they'd probably just That's kill the start us. start of an 80s movie. Yeah, it is. Actually, it is. Like Stand By Me or something like that. Yeah. Um, no, but I later on kind of... I moved out of there when I was 17, but it was always known as a Satan worshipper's place. And I read somewhere that Mount Dandenong and Brimley were like the highest concentration of Satan worshippers in... Brimley? Yeah, apparently. That's, I mean, this is like stuff that you read pre-internet, you know. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Brimley's got a weird vibe. It's beautiful, but it's definitely got a, an yeah, oddness yeah. about it in a wonderful way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I love it there, but it's... Oh, it's Pixies and Gnomes. Yeah. Yeah. It is Pixies and Gnomes. 
Mount Daniel, I'm full of pixies and I purple dresses, you know. It's all wizards and shit up there. Yeah, I love that you sneak off and do those adventures because that was my childhood as well. Just like, you know, uh, those belts that held shotgun shells. Yep. Put empty ones in, you know, yeah. the norm. Yeah, you just wanted to be like Rambo. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and so there was two parts of your childhood. There was the Dandenong part. Yep. And Well, I grew up in Glen Waverley yeah. before family separation, and then they moved to Mount Dandenong. And then when I was 17, uh, I moved to Keysborough, which was a pretty rough area. My dad had bought a house there and, you know, you know, without long story short, but very abusive childhood stepfather kind of thing. And then finally, when you grow up and you you fight back, he's like, well, you can leave home. And I'm like, okay. So I left and then found myself at year 12 living with my dad in Keysborough, which is a pretty, it was a pretty rough area back then, right next to Danny Nong and Springvale. And they had these gangs called 3174. Like it was heavy kind of shit to be a, a blonde head. And at that point, I mean, I was surfing, but you were more, not a pretend surfer. You know, I was 17, so I had surfed. Yeah. But, you know, you were, I really stood out when I went to yeah. when I went to Chandler Secondary College in Keysborough, like, because I had 501 jeans on and Blunston boots, you know, and these guys like, what are you, a fucking tradie or something, mate? You know, <laughs> it was like, whoa, this place is seriously deep suburban and angry, you know. But I made it through, so, yeah. One year, I only had to do one year there. Yeah, so, so. what was it like saying fresh? Oh, pretty daunting. Yeah. But then, you know, where I'd come from was kind of daunting too. So it's just like, okay. And my dad was barely at home because he was a national sales manager and he'd just started seeing someone who later became his wife. So I was essentially 17, living on my own, got a job in the local bottle shop. Oh, which my was God. Just a recipe for fun and disaster. Yeah. You know? how, was, how did year 12 end up? I did. Well, well, we called it Veggie Year 12. And there was only four schools, I think, in Victoria who did it called Group 2. And I wasn't a stupid student. I just didn't want to study. Yeah, yeah So yeah. I chose this school because I had Group 2. So you basically got to make up your own curriculum, which included... Now, for Year 12, this is bad, you know. We only had to read two books and write about them, like 1,500-word essays. Can I ask what the books were? My Left Foot. So was that an adaption, that and film? S- yeah, and so, and another film. Both of them were films. That's how lazy it was. Apocalypse you know, with, Now? No, it wasn't. God, I wish I could remember. Anyway, My Left Foot and something else. Because um, we studied that in Year 12. Right, sorry, oh, Kate, God, yeah. no. We were, it, was, it was real veggie stuff. Like, you know, you were either supremely lazy and didn't want to be at school like me but didn't want to leave. Yeah. Or you just didn't have the brain capacity to do Year 12. So yeah, half yeah, the school yeah. did Group 1, and then while they were studying for their exams... The group twos went off on a trip around Tasmania with the teachers and got loaded with the teachers to, to the point where at the end of the tour, I mean, probably statute of limitations has passed now, but literally the teachers pulled over the buses and when everyone has to hand over their cameras, it wasn't digital cameras back then, it was photo, everyone hand over your photos. Like people were getting drunk. We had to take a girl to stop so she could go and have the morning after pill. Teachers were drunk. You know, I went up to try and... To the teacher's room, whatever, and like, you know, whatever, fuck it. You know, if they get in trouble, whatever, it's too long. We haven't said names, it's all good. No, no, it's cool. When I remember going up to the teacher's room at a motel, we stayed at a motel, and I was trying, and I was like, 
I know you're smoking weed in there. Can I can I get some weed? And she's like, no, 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 no. And then later on, you just see another te- like teacher like throwing up outside the room. It was loose. So anyway, that that trip just ended with a giant lecture in front of the bus. Teachers standing at the front of the bus, just going, "You have to hand over your films." And people were handing over their films. And two weeks later, getting back like three photos. You know, after you'd taken rolls and rolls of film. If you guys say a single word about this, we've all lost our jobs, which would have happened. Like it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were we at? 89, 90? 89, I thought. 1990. So that that was my year 12. But it was a bit of a thing like back then. I remember like, you know, I was a little bit, not many years after you, but as you got older, it was, you had a drink with some of the teachers. Yeah. It was sort of like a rite of passage almost. Yeah. And there was always one of the, not in my year, but the other years above you, always like one of the guys, I still remember his name, but it's like, and he was allegedly having a thing with the oh. science lab girl or, <laughs> you know, stuff that would just, even rumours of that would just end people's jobs and careers and lives now. Yeah. But it was kind of common whether it was true or not. The rumours would just fly, you know. It was, I don't know, I'm kind of, I feel really lucky to have grown up in a, in a pre-internet social media world as much as I love it now, but. No, I do too. Yeah. No phones. Nothing. Like what you did on the weekend was what you did on the weekend. Yeah. And that was for you and your friends only. Yeah. And trying to meet people, trying to explain to my partner, she's 16 years younger than me, about meeting at Flinders Street Station, you know, with your school friends from different schools in your past. You just named a time and you were there. Yeah. And if you had to wait, you had to wait. There's no texting or anything. It's just like... Yeah, and and that built the moment because it's like, yes, he's here. Yeah. And you're stoked to see someone. Yeah. I, I, I totally, man, there's like something for me missing in this like constant drib drab, like you see people vicariously on social media and you think you know what's going on for them, but you don't. Like it's like they show you these bits so you make up a story in your mind that they're killing. Yeah. And yet you don't know, you know, and it's so, oh, I don't know. But for me it doesn't join the dots but it joins some unhealthy dots. Yeah. Because I judge people on their social media presence and it's not who they are. Not really, no. You just, I mean, you know, you don't put up your, when you, I don't put up when I'm in a ball on the couch or something. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Or when I'm in hospital, like, oh, I don't, you know, I think I might have put up a few hospital pictures or whatever, but it's like, I don't want people to see the shit that I'm going through. Like it's, and I don't think, and I think when people do that, it's, I guess it's their own thing to do, but. Not many people really bear. I mean, imagine if social media was reversed and you just, they made a rule. It's like you can only put up your negative shit for a week or two weeks. You know, the world would really see how we are, you know. I wanted to do like, this is me at the sink again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then some people do that and it becomes their thing and it's their shtick and then they like become sink man, sink man and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, they go on yeah. Channel 9 Sunday show or whatever it is or Today show and, they become popular for 10 minutes as being Sink Man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's so my there's, end. There's Sink still, Man. There's still something for you. <laughs> no, but just going back I, I, to what you said, like, yeah, if you didn't show up at Flinders Street Station, you weren't there and you missed out because everyone had left. Yeah. Or someone stayed yeah. and waited a bit more. Yeah, you would the stay. Link. They had this section under um, the city square before it got redeveloped. This is like another thing that would never happen now. Under City Square, they had this dark, it was like a basement, and it was just full of couch, couches, and youth, teenagers or whatever, would just sit there smoking ciggies, drinking, like during the day. It was like a dead spot. Where, where was this? Under the City Square, which probably doesn't even exist as the City Square anymore. It's um, 
Where's the city square? On the corner of Little... See, it doesn't exist. Uh, on the corner of Little Lonsdale, I think. Uh, next to the... Next to Melbourne Town Hall. Up there's that like, end. There's like waterfalls and stuff there now. And um, I, I know there's a gelato shop there and a fancy cake shop. I've gone blank on the name of that. But yeah, it was a... They redeveloped the city square. But before that, they had this underground lair. Public space. Public space where kids would just hang out who'd wagged school or on school holidays. Just... It was crazy. Good too, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that was where Melbourne, there was a Melbourne surf shop there. Yeah. Melbourne surf and skate. It wasn't, it was right near there on one of those little streets or whatever. And so were you playing music at this stage? Of your no. Life? No. I wasn't allowed to play music at school at, at, until I moved out with my dad. My stepfather was like, he was a, very, he was a tyrant and a cunt. I don't know if I can say that one. You on can say point. anything. Okay. You know, um, he's dead now, which is good. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't allowed to play guitar. Like, I was really into music, mm-hmm. like heavily obsessed, but um, wasn't allowed to play guitar because he thought I would become a punk and a Yeah, the old school, you know. You might listen to the devil's music yeah, backwards. Yeah. yeah. And all of that happened. Yeah. It's just as soon as I left. <laughs> It was great. Yeah, it's turning the things backwards. Yeah, but I was, you know, just classic kid, just locked away in their bedroom listening to music, really. Yeah, but yeah, wasn't allowed to play it. Uh, do you have a bit of a resentment there? I would. Yeah, I guess so. I, but the resentment's more because to do it's part with other of stuff. like your life. Yeah, but then, then when I picked up a guitar, eventually, it f- sort of uh, shaped the way that I play which is very sort of made up and very not uh, not technical. You know, if I had started learning at year seven, like all the kids now and they have all these lessons and stuff, then I would be a different guitarist. I'm not a lead guitarist. I'm not a... I can't do many covers. Like the only We've done covers over the years, but someone else in the band has to figure them out. You know, like the only covers I can figure out are like a three-chord country song and most of those, like my ears don't compute. So... I don't I actually don't mind that I started later. It mm. just I started when I was the right when time. I was ready. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I don't think kids like my daughter's learning guitar, and it's like I wanted to learn a little bit, but then it's like if you drop it and don't come back to it till you're twenty or whatever, then that's fine. You know, your guitar a guitar if you're into rock and roll for me should be picked up when you've got something to say, whether whether it's vocally or just with the instrument and the noise. You know, for me, more of it was about the sound. You know, because I just loved even early, like Neil Young. You know, like it's it's an angry sound, and early Midnight Oil. It's an angry sound. So the guitar was like a. This sounds really wanky, but it is. Without knowing it, it was an expression of just kind of getting all of your anger out, just turning a guitar up and playing the same chord for like twenty minutes or something at maximum volume. Yeah. So, so I guess I came to it. You come to it when you when you get to it, right? It's a form of expression, one hundred percent. Yeah. If, well, any way you look at it, it's a form of expression because yeah. you're affecting or expressing. And everyone is different, and they all express in a different way. And what they might like musically, I don't. I might not like musically, and they might not like my opinion. But it, all that really matters is is you playing your instrument, whatever it is, guitars, drums, you know, whatever. I had drum lessons in year seven, and I was terrible at them, and. Me too. Yeah, it's hard. It's so hard. It's hand, really hard. feet, hand, feet. Oh, like, what's too the much? F- Way too much. I really wanted to be a drummer. I yeah. could not, for the life of me, coordinate those two things. I was thinking about this the other day when I was driving. I mean, drive a manual. Oh, yeah. I'm like, 
It's not too much different. I should be... This is like the drums, clutch, yeah. accelerator, you know. It's hard. But driving a manual's not. No. But that's because we grew up doing it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's, but... it's, I don't drive them that often these days, but when I do, it just comes back straight away. Yeah. Um, I know that was a bad comparison, but I was thinking in the car, I was like, maybe I should have another crack at the drums. I'm a pretty handy fucking manual driver here. Well, you should. <laughs> you should. I tried a few years ago. I had a couple of lessons and was still just terrible at it. You know, yeah. So I stopped. Yeah. Short attention span. So, um, yeah, me too. <laughs> um, yeah. What were we talking about? Yeah. Sorry, but uh, no, we were we were we were under under the lair at the top of Melbourne City Town Square Hall. City Square yeah. it was called. Yeah. It was fun. I mean, I was petrified as well. It was terrifying. All of that stuff was terrifying as a kid. I don't think you strolled in there i was not i was not a tough kid you know i was adventurous yeah, but then yeah. you know you you can be whatever and i was tall but skinny and gangly and pimply but there's the cool kids who just make it all look so easy being cool and tough you know and this was back in the days of like real sort of toughs it was in the 80s so it was right at tight jeans and tight jeans and studded leather jack studded you know army jackets and all that kind of stuff Man, I remember there was a pinnies at the top of the uh, shops in Mount Martha and I walked in there one day and I just, I, I asked this guy for a drag on his cigarette. I'd never fucking met the dude. And he just turned around and blew smoke in my face and walked off. So t- <laughs> <laughs> He's probably, probably did time in jail or something. Fuck. Our school bus had, so we would get on at the bottom of the mountain and the kids from Tirana, which was a boys' home, would already be on the bus. So they were up the back, you know, the full backseat toughs kind of stuff. Yeah, backseat. Yeah, they were daunting because yeah. I think they had accommodation up on the top of Mount Dandenong. So you'd have to share the bus with these, you know, boys' home. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. Yeah. They were kind of tough dudes back yeah. then. Because yeah. as a kid, you're not aware of the world or whatever, that someone's done it tough or they've had a rough line, life or whatever to get to their point. They're simply, you're so innocent and naive. You just think that they're toughs or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I totally, uh, totally get it. So through all this time, you finish year 12 and yep. did, were you, did, you, did you have a direction? None. None? Oh, I wanted to be a teacher, but only because my year 12 teacher was a surfer. And I thought that um, it meant massive holidays. That's, yeah, wow. that's the only... Yeah. I'm not against working. I've worked my ass off my whole life, but I love holidays and I didn't want to be nine to five. I just thought teaching would be cool because what's his name? Tony Bajira or something. It's like he's been surfing on the weekend and, oh, man, you get six weeks off. I'm going to be a teacher, you know. So I I started a teacher's degree. I never, I didn't finish it. What sort of teacher were you thinking? This is an interesting one. Um, I was in school plays and stuff. Yeah, I love it, yeah. I was in the school plays. Um, and for the only person in the school, there was me and this other guy would compete for the lead roles, and he was a bit of a knob. <laughs> but he was very confident, yeah. you know, and we had a musical, and I would be like the second lead role sort of with him, these two competing males, good side, bad side. But I'm up the back because I can't sing, you know, like I had one solo song, and I, you know, for a guy who, the only person who ended up singing in a band out of the whole freaking school, I was up the back, you know. Of the school production. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I 
I tried out, I thought I'd be a drama teacher, yeah. you know, because I wanted to be an actor and all this kind of stuff. I thought, yeah. I'm going to be a drama teacher. Yeah. So I went to the audition at um, Rusden, which is part of Deakin back then in Monash. And um, they, we did drama stuff, but part of the drama audition was you had to audition for dance. You just had to go and see the dance people, you know. <laughs> and I... Um, Went in there and I, you know, met some nice people who were talking away. But this time I was 18 years old and I had like long blonde hair and I was super skinny, like couldn't put on weight, whatever. But I've got kind of my feet go out. So I, I, I walk like a dancer. And I was also quite fit because I was surfing and I sort of hadn't got f- fully into the kind of drugs and rock and roll lifestyle then. So I was like this tall, long blonde haired thing. And all you had to do in this dance audition was run across a dance studio and leap through the air. Like just run, no style or anything like that. So we did this, blah, 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 you know, wrote it off. And then you get your results in the paper because that's how you found it if you got into university back in, back in the day. Um, and I looked it up and I saw my name and it said, you know, Russell University, DD, something, something, something. Okay. So I rang them up, you know, you ring the the drama department and say, hi, you know, Dave Butterworth, I got accepted in to do drama, you know, what's what's the go? When's She said, oh, no, you, you didn't get accepted in to do drama. You got accepted as a dance major. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what? And she's like, she was really offended. She was a very elderly drama type lady. She goes, excuse me? And I'm like, you're kidding me. You know, you're effing kidding me. What? She's like, oh, excuse me, you know, you were the only male chosen and four other women were chosen out of however many... And I'm going, oh, my God, what do I do? You know, and it was a modern dance. Mm. God, not many people know this about me. And as I get old, I've told a few more people, but it's like the... It's a hidden secret that I'm bearing to all now. Um, so I was chosen as a dance major and rocked up so we still got to do drama and the plan was kind of you do two years of the drama um the dance thing while doing drama but not as a major and then you can sort of switch over yeah yeah. into the the drama major type teaching and yeah it didn't go well you know (laughs) i mean i had a lot of foot injuries because i had plantar fasciitis so i sat out a lot but it was also the time you know i got to university and just met all these other cool people yeah. Moved into Richmond. Rock and roll took over. We t- everything took over apart from going to uni. You know, I lasted two and a half years. Um, my dad stopped paying for it after two years or something because he figured out he's like, this is you're just, yeah, you yeah. know, you're yeah. wasting my money here. Having a land. Yeah, I was. Yeah. It's having a land. But yeah, I sort of bumbled my way through a couple of years of, and I hate dancing. Like, I, I can't do it in public. I'm petrified of it. But yeah, I was a, chosen as a dance major at uh, Rusden University, which was quite prestigious at the time. And, and did you have to do a little bit of ballet? I did have to do a little bit of ballet. Yeah, man. I know you've talked about ballet on yeah. this show, which is why I went. Uh, if ever I get to talk to him, yeah. I'll just I might as well tell him. Yeah, you know, oh, I had to do it too. Yeah, I still like uh, for my little cousins. I always like to pull out like the odd little move just yeah. to make the little kids laugh. You know. Yeah, <laughs> I still remember that when my daughter was like, I still remember, she's like. She started dancing and I'm going, oh, do you remember your first position? She's like, what? And I went, here it is. Second, third. She's going, Dad, how do you know this stuff? I said, oh. It's a life. Yeah. It's another part that I like to not tell you about. But yeah. So that's what I did. But that was the the introduction into rock and roll 
was meeting people. That And Richmond. Richmond, yeah. Moved into a share house with some friends very early on in uni. I don't think when I started, but it must have been within the first couple of months. And we all just got along, you know, like house on fire. And we all moved into a, two share houses that were three houses away in Richmond. And they were 500 metres from the Great Britain Hotel, which at the time was a very... This was pre-Nirvana breaking, you know. Wow. Pre... So in 92. Yeah, before that. Like I started uni in 91, I guess. Yeah. So it was 1991. Um, Nirvana had released a record and so had Mudhoney, who were like, they were all our heroes, you know, Mudhoney especially were the ones. But yeah, anyway, so the Great Britain Hotel was a tiny pub which was the epicenter of a scene there in St Kilda, you know, probably the two zones, you know, that rock and roll was... was it The SB, or more Prince of Wales. Uh, was it upstairs or was it just the Prince? Upstairs yeah. in the piano bar and whatever. But the, the Great Britain was, it was small. Like I'm looking at your lounge room here. It was twice the size. So probably if, it, if 100 people were in this pub... It's the one it's right chockers. on the, the, the train tracks there. It's right on the train line, yeah, which is still a pub now, but yeah. but a very different pub to what it was. It Was Was it the downstairs part? Yeah. I didn't even know. This. Upstairs was where people, where all the junkies who owned it lived. <laughs> that's, that's, but no, there's you know. a bit that goes underground. The answer off the front bit, that they turn into like oh, a bit of a nightclub. Oh, there was an underground bit, but yeah. I think that might have been the toilets or something back yeah. then. I don't know. Okay. So the bands played upstairs in the they middle. They played in the, the middle. In the bar, just on yeah. the ground floor, essentially. Yeah. But it was... You know, we would see the Dirty Three play nearly every week in this pub and a band called the Powder Monkeys who were still one of the most powerful rock and roll forces I've ever seen and another band called Hoss. And then all these other just scuzzy, you know, rock and roll bands would play there and that that was our life, you know, just going to this pub and seeing music and not really doing any schoolwork. Yeah, but just... Feeling what these yeah. old people were putting out into yeah. the uh, they weren't that much older. They were probably a year or two older, really, in or maybe five. Some of the yeah, like the Dirty Three guys are you know they're probably sixty now or something. So they may be a little bit older, but um, they they you know it was just epic. So energetically, like you go, you know, they're putting out a vibration that is matching your frequency at that time. Yeah, and we'd all started playing guitars, or others had been playing, and we started forming bands because we just wanted to play at the. At the Great Britain, there was no... I think the thing about what Nirvana changed, the thing about before them was all I ever wanted to do was put out a seven-inch single, you know. That was it. That's the only goal that a band had, you know, or maybe... Man, that was it, I think, you know. Like, oh, we've always wanted to tour you, go to Europe. That was the rock and roll dream. But that's it. Once that was, There was nothing else. And then as soon as Nirvana broke, it was like... All of this scuzzy music is actually popular now, but it was. I had probably had a couple of years, which I'm glad about, where there was no desire to make money out of it whatsoever. It was just simply about being in a band and making a racket. And so that's what on. you're doing in these Richmond yeah, when you're living in yeah, that, that zone. Yeah, that was the first. Yeah, I'd had a band before that, but yeah. Really? My first band was with, um, do you know Pete James Photography in Barwon Heads? Yeah, that rings a bell. Peter Ingham's his name. But he, him and I had a band in Croydon, which was at the bottom of Mount Dandenong for a little while together. And then that was like, I think that was just as I started university. And were you band. guys playing your own stuff? Yeah. Epic. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah. 
It's sort of it's pretty ballsy to be just trying to do your own thing because my knee jerk would be like, let's just play some gunners or you know. No, I think the whole scene was the opposite of that. Yeah, you know, and a lot of it was just noise or sound or um, just the most basic. You know, I mean, it, I, I say punk rock, but I don't. There was spiky head punk rock that has a sound, but it was more just the attitude of just just do whatever. Every band, you know, like Sonic Youth and yeah. Sonic Youth was such an epic band that yeah. almost you can't describe what they do and you would just try and make noise or feedback. You know, we got into fuzz pedals and Mud Honey were such influences because it was just, it was two chords, you know, and just someone yelling into a microphone, really. And that's what a lot of it was. And the Pixies is pretty loose. Yep. Their stuff seemed to like jump all over the place. When you just say, you say like, I'm thinking at that time, I was like, yeah, Pixies. And they, they were really hard to put your finger on yeah changing i love that dude do you yeah i don't know anything about him but he's um solo records oh what? There's, there's one of his solo records that i've got to go blank show me no tears oh it's, it's not the one i'm thinking i'm su- the one with Superbound and okay okay I've, i i became obsessed by the one frank black record called show me no tears or show me oh, your teenager Te- of the year sorry. Oh, teenager of the year okay you can go back and listen to that and he recorded all that. Down. What was show it? me no tears. He recorded all that stuff live too, like just no, no overdubs or any of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. It was just all about expression. Yeah, yeah, making a noise, being loud. How good? It was real good. Because I find like for, you know, like fuck to be able to express yourself and not care is is quite a skill. Yeah. It's taken me a long time to be able to think, like, put something out into the world and not feel like, oh, fuck, I don't, I don't know, you know, not worthy of putting something out. But to be that young and being like, I'm just going to fucking put stuff out, I think is empow- yeah. empowering. And everyone around us was doing the same thing. Yeah. So it didn't feel abnormal. And we weren't overly confident people. I think we were all probably reasonably introverted not so introverted that you're not scared to get up on stage and sing into a microphone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but um, we weren't, you had to advertise your gigs, but we weren't like, it wasn't even cool to be in a band, you know, it really wasn't, you know, you were definitely still an out, you're very, it's very outcast. Whereas nowadays everyone's in a band, you know, cause. Well, it's the same thing as surfing, right? Yeah. Like back then surfing wasn't a very cool thing to do. Uh, I was, surfers were outcasts. There was a few surfers in the scene, but we it was almost like we didn't keep it on the down low, but everyone knew I was a surfer because I I ended up on Triple R. I don't know, like this is this is like a side bump, but it happened at about the same time. I rang Triple R and I had been surfing and it was like, Do you need a surf reporter? You know, on the on the breakfast show. That's where I started in public radio was just by ringing Triple R and going I want to be your surf reporter. And I don't know why, because I don't... Once, As soon as I'd started it, I was like, oh, my God, I feel bad about being a surf reporter now. I'm sort of almost embarrassed to mention it, you know, but I am bearing everything here to you. But I did surf reports on Triple R for three years, I think, on The Breakfast Show. So was that starting 93? Probably started the surf reports in oh, 1991 or two. And maybe. so would you drive down? And- no. What would you do? Well, I was either at a friend's house in Phillip Island uh, and have a look, but I had like uh, Pete Wilkinson from Trigger Brothers. Yeah, he was always he looked, so I rang him. On the, it was only like Friday mornings. Um, Laurie from Island Surf, 
And I can't remember what I did down here. Maybe I was either down here or... But, you know, like you were talking the other week, you'd read the newspapers, you'd see the high-pressure systems. Yeah. The, the Herald Sun gave you two days wind, and it was about as basic as that. Yeah. Like, I was not a high-tech whatever. I don't know why I did it. But oh. then once expressing, I did it... Still expressing. Yeah, I was expressing, yeah. you know. And then... But then there was a real crossover because then I just became immersed in the music scene and didn't... I did surf, but I didn't, didn't want to talk about it. You know, like yeah, yeah. I felt... Im- not embarrassed about it, but it was, I don't know, everyone just, everyone seemed to have not blonde hair and, you know, it was all about dressing in flannelettes and being, you know, just... Cut. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> kind of, like just, and being into drugs was more important than being into surfing or whatever, you know. Mm. But, um, yeah, so I sort of mixed the both, but I know that it, the last year of, of the surf reports on Triple R were literally me just... You know, I'd been asleep for two hours after a gig and doing whatever all night, just sort of, you know, cheap wine and whatever it was, and then just rolling over and ringing these people and, and then just going on the road and going, hey, and then just going, then go back to sleep, have a pipe and go back to sleep or something. <laughs> you know. And then I stopped doing that, but that got me into radio. Like once I was around the station, yeah. then I started like wanting to do one music show. So that was how I got in there. And was that how Galactic Zoo? Yeah. Yeah. That's how that started off. Me and another guy from, um, that I'd met in the production course, Mike, we, you know, we sort of hit it off musically, like, you know, and stuff. So we just started doing a show together with another bloke, friend of mine called Roman. He never went on air. He, he just always just bought the weed, you know, he was the vibe guy. <laughs> so so good. it was three of us and just two of us, you know, would be on the air. Uh, but Mike was totally straight like he didn't drink didn't take drugs or anything like that so you know me and roman and whoever else was in there were like off chops and he was he was kind of like the straight guy you know i'm not sure he you know knew what to make of us eventually he drifted off after a few years so he was the one from uni oh no he was from the production course at triple r basically to get on air yeah you have to you have to learn i suppose you can't just sort of go in there and know how to operate stuff and you know you had to learn the rules yeah, an apprenticeship of sorts. Yeah, yeah, and the, then and then we started doing graveyard shifts, which was between two and six. Um, two and six in the morning. So fun. Did that? Yeah, huge fun, huge fun. You know, like, and we would, you know, there were times when, you know, we would drop acid on air, and then Mike would just have to run the show because me and Roman and whoever else was <laughs> was just out on the couch, just like can't do it anymore. You know, gotta go. Oh my god! And then so um, good. It was so much fun. Like it was a blast. You know, it really was. And the the graveyards went for a couple of years, and then we we got a show. Like we got our own spot on the grid, which was Thursday night at midnight, which is after Max Crawdaddy, who's the legendary blues guy, and um, and we just kept doing the same thing. You know, like and Max at that point, you know, I don't know about now, but. You know, we would walk in the studio and go, hey, boys, and just hand you this joint, like, bigger than you'd ever seen. Because he was, like, grown up. Like, he's 10 years older than us. You know, we were, like, vacuuming weed out of the back of the couch because we'd run out, you know, like, trying to find, doing all that kind of classic sort of stuff. And someone would, you'd walk in the radio studio and he'd just hand you this joint and go, have a good show. You know, and you'd Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for killing it. <laughs> yeah. And then Mike, Mike just kind of drifted off. And then it was just me. And then I... I think, I don't know how long I did the nighttime slide after Max. Like, it's pretty taxing on you, like, you know, midnight till two. 
probably did it for two years, maybe more. And then they moved me up into the Friday. I did Friday for, I think, one grid. And then they found me a slot on the Thursdays at midday during the day. And I stayed there for, I think, nine years I did the Thursday slot. Wow. So I kind of, I would say I just kind of grew up on the air. Triple R is such an institution. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. And PBS, same thing. Like, you know, they're both... 106, 7. Yeah. I don't listen to it as much as I do Triple R. Well, you know, one's more more popular in the... It's weird to be more popular in the alternative world or whatever. But, yeah, Triple R is amazing, you know. And whether you love the shows or hate them, the fact that it's there and it allows people to do... It's nowhere near as loose as what we, no, yeah. you know, used well, to get. Well, nothing is. Nothing is. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, nothing is. Um, the Everything show, is so scrutinised now. It's yeah. just like, it's fucking a lot the of The show com- used to complain to the station manager who was the late um, Stephen Walker, you know, and the ghost who walks, epic kind of triple R show, you know, and they complained that after certain people, which was us, in the graveyard, you know, the studio just stank of weed and there was, you know, you, please don't, no one can smoke in the, and he's like, that's exactly what this station should be about. <laughs> so I guess that's why I kind of had a, wasn't a job, but why I had a slot, you know, just, just cause I, I don't know. I was just like the, I think when I really look back at it now, I was like, I mean, everybody around dabbled and smoked weed, but I was the, the stone, the young stone kid on air, you know, I was early twenties. Mid twenties, maybe. How fun! It was super fun, like so good. Yeah, I was thinking about it the other night. I was driving back. I was listening, and the other morning I had to drive. I like I'm not very good in the mornings, and I had to Virginia. I had to drive to Melbourne at like five a.m. and we we're flicking through stations, and it was just like those morning people are just barking at you, and it just. It, it can't. I can't do it. I can't have that frequency coming at me. Yeah. I mean, you go to Triple R, and it's just like dialed down four notches. It is, and yeah. it's just like these people just. There's no agenda. It seems to be. Yeah. And I, I'm like, I can, I can do this. My new car only has radio at the moment. The CD nice. thing's busted, and I've gone back to just radio. They had some good breakfast teams back then too. You know, like pretty legendary stuff when you look back on it, you know. Oh, going back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, who, the, who was the, there was the one particular lady. Um, oh, Chris Hatzis was there always, but Kate Langbrook that's ended up I on think, there. Yeah. yeah. She was pretty, she like... Was, yeah, she. I mean, she, a lot of them crossed over, but then, you know, Chris Hatzis was the guiding kind of guy behind the mic and the producer of the show forever. You know, and here, Kate and James Young and Dave O'Neill and then, you know, then... The ones that are clearly going to get poached by commercial radio get poached, and off they toddle, and they become super famous. Bigsy seems to be has been in there for a long time. Bigsy's been there for a long time. <laughs> Max Croydaddy's still there. Denise Highland's still there. There's still a few old dinosaurs. Neil Rogers hanging around, which I love. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's kind of cool. But it's you know, yeah, it is an institution, and I'm I'm uh, happy to have been a part of it. So, well, you had another go on it recently. Mm. Yeah, I had a go just as a um a guest for an hour on off the record a couple of times over summer, which is enough. You know, doing a pro, doing a radio program takes a lot of work. So um, now this is the thought. I was like, you've got how many radio stations? I don't know how many there are. And can you just start a radio station? Like what are the rules that's stopping people from broadcasting? You need a license, I think, and you need to 
purchased that that specific spot. I'm no expert on it, but you need to sp- purchase the band that you're going to broadcast on. Right. Yeah. Which has all changed with internet now, right? But back then, yeah, you had to have a license and the government would grant a license, which is why Triple R is still under, it's under an education license. Is it? Yeah, that's why you have a lot of your shows on the weekends that are like science-based and, um, you know, medical-based or, you know, in a loose Triple R fashion. Yeah. But yeah, they still have a certain percentage, I believe, that has to be educational. So that's a, that's a not, as ex, not as expensive license. I don't know. It'd be like know. having the um, club plates on your car. Probably. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could. I don't know. Like, But even the public radio up in Mount Daniel, or all the local small public radio stations, I don't know how they... They must get an exemption or something and be able to broadcast, you know, for a, for a lesser fee. But you, you just can't... You can't jump on... The government owns the radio waves, essentially, and you just can't pirate, you know, kind of plug into that and just start broadcasting your own thing. I guess you have to jump through some hoops and... Yeah, it's a fantasy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, the people who pirate started radio. Triple R and PBS and stuff, that was their fantasy, you know? Yeah. And they, they really did create something that's quite unique, which is why Melbourne is such a strong music and culture town, not just music, like all sorts of culture and art. You know. Do you know who did start Triple R? Uh, I should, but I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was before my time. Like, it was... It had been going... I mean, I started there in the night. I think it was late 70s or something like that. So, And then, so, like, if you play music, just whatever, you say so you've got your slot, right? Yep. And you go, ah, oh, tonight I'm going to... I've got, a, like, a playlist. Is this how it works? So you go, oh, I want to play all these songs. Before each one, I want to talk a little bit about the song, what I love about it, what I love about the band, maybe whatever. Yep. And you go... There's 20 tracks. Can you just play whatever you want or yeah. do you have to get licensed to no, play? No, Triple R you can. Yeah. Whereas it's all programmed, like Triple J's programmed and Triple M's heavily programmed. and But Triple R and PBS are basically the announcer can play whatever they want. And I never prepared. Like I was the worst preparer. You just do it on the hock. On, on the, the hock. Just bring in a whole bunch of records that have been exciting me or the same records I've been listening to nonstop. And, you know, Mike would bring in records and... You'd borrow a few off some record stores and just, and I would make it up on the spot till for the whole time I was on air, like 15 years, I never really prepared. If I had an interview, I'd prepare a little bit. And as I got more mature, but, but some people, you know, will prepare their whole show and they always have. I just never rolled that way because I'm not that kind of. No, you were rolling blunts and. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this barely, is what I feel I like next. Barely able to, to get in there. But there was a time when I was the cleaner at the station too. Like they just employed me as the cleaner and I would. I would sleep in there under the production desk because I was living, I'd moved to the peninsula by that point and I would drive up in my car and with my dog and we would clean half the station and then sleep under the desk in the production office or whatever and then get up and clean the other half the next morning and then hang around town for a bit and do my show and then go home. Where yeah. Where is it? Uh, now it's in East Brunswick, but it was in um, Fitzroy when I was there. Started in Carlton, so it's always like super inner city. Yeah, yeah. It's such a like I just yeah. It's it is an uh, I don't know. It's just such an iconic part of Victoria. Yeah, it's still pirate radio. It's a lot. It's a lot safer and cleaner, like everything is nowadays. But it's still pirate radio compared to you know Nova and 
um, whatever the other Fox, you know, all that sort of stuff. It is still people doing exactly what they want to do. Yeah. You know, just, you know, within a safe boundary, but yeah. I mean, that's, that's why the band scene in the seventies and eighties was just so epic out of Melbourne. And so have you ever read the news? Me? Yeah. I tend not to. So the news, when the news comes in, is that like whatever you feel like as well? Or is that part like someone's, you know, the news on the hour? Yeah. How does that one work? I don't know. I guess they get their news from a news paper. There is a news surface. <laughs> a news service. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I know when the, the breakfast show in there, the breakfasters, they're the only ones who are employed. Everyone else is volunteer. Is so, that right? Yeah. And they don't get paid a lot of money. Like, you know. What time um, does that start? Six till nine, they're on air. So I guess they've got to be there from five till nine thirty. That's, 9:30 that's or early, yeah. But yeah, they do the news, but no one else does the news. Yeah, I, I'm so fascinated by. It. I love it, man. This is what a how, what an unreal experience. Yeah, looking back on it was now, especially lately, that I'm like super analyzing life is like whoa, because I was never aware at the time of what I was doing. I was not a I wasn't, I was like very insecure despite the fact that I would go on the radio or do gigs or whatever, but still insecure. And now every announcer's, you know, there's, there's a camera in the corner usually of a radio station or there's a, they've got a social media thing. We had just had none of that stuff. Yeah. You, you literally were, which is what I love about being a DJ, you were a person in a box yeah. playing records to people. Yeah, you know, you're a voice. Yeah. And you have a great voice. Well, thanks. Well, I've only got half the voice now. Really? Well, I lost because of my um, uh, one of my vocal cords was is paralyzed. That that's how I found out that I had cancer. So hold on, how many vocal cords do we have? Two. Whoa, 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 whoa! Only two. Only two. Yeah, but it's it's it's. Um, I thought you were gonna make it like sound like a piano back in there. Or no, something. no, no. It's it's like it's like a small set of lips. Yes. Like, okay. I see. Yes. If, it's like a small set of lips. Yes. Really tiny, like. I don't know the exact measurements, but maybe a centimetre to two centimetres and, and they're in the middle of your neck and they essentially just open and close. Just open and close as you talk. Yeah, that, that's, oh, I'm seeing it, yeah. That's your vocal cords. And they have, a, they have a tube around them, which some singers get nodules, which are like yeah. growths on them and stuff from screaming into a microphone or whatever too long. But your vocal cords just open and close. And I had... Um, I had a sore throat. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm here. I mean, I'm happy to talk about. It. Not, I'm not happy to talk about cancer because I wish I didn't have it. But this is how I found out. Yeah. Was I had a sore throat in August of 2021, and I lost my voice, which we all do. Everyone gets a sore throat and loses yeah. their voice. Like I'm having a good voice day today. Mm. You know, yesterday was like quakey and you know losing half of it. Um, I lost my voice, and after about three weeks, I went, "Oh, this is a bit weird." And then I thought, maybe I've got a paralyzed vocal cord because my ex-wife, who was a school teacher, had had a paralyzed vocal cord. And, How did she uh, get hers? From talking at kids all day. Oh, yeah, okay. Because yep. teachers yep. talk a lot. Yeah. Um, and the way they fixed her vocal cord was, and they eventually did that to my left vocal cord, was they inject it with um, essentially what's cheek filler, you know, what mainly uh, women put in. Yeah, You call Botox. it Botox. Yeah. But so my left vocal cord is kind of propped up with this filler and it doesn't really move. So only my right vocal cord moves. Did you have to teach yourself to re-talk or just... A little bit. I, I mean, I do vocal exercises, but that's why 
you know, I've heard you talk or whatever, but I, I can't drink caffeine because if I drink caffeine, my voice disappears. It's it just it it's no good for your vocal cords. Is that right? Yeah. But you decaf no, it does seem uh, to, uh, a little bit. Of, I think yeah. if I have decaf day after day, yeah, it okay. does a little. I don't know. I'm I'm still skeptical if there's any caffeine in decaf, even though they say there's not. But no, there is a little bit. I yeah. reckon because Virginia made me one the other day, and I was like, started to get like, Are yeah, you fucking sure this was a decaf. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's true. I've, I've had a few of those occasions. I was like, hmm, this is weird. Why am I still awake at yeah, yeah. midnight? You know, it's like I had decaf. But anyway, so that's how um, I found it. I'd like so. I had this sore throat and the doctor went, you need to go and get your, your voice checked. So I went to a voice clinic and they went, they put a camera through your nose down into your throat and, and ask you to talk and you can look at, you can see your vocal cords opening and closing on the screen. And they said, oh yeah, you've got a paralyzed vocal cord there. Um, we can fix And I said, oh, I know how you fix that. And they went, yeah, yeah, cool. And they said, we need you to go and have a, um, just go and have an MRI case. There's a rare nerve that um, could be damaged. It's so rare. Don't worry about it. But we we need to sort of tick this off the list. Go and have a MRI or whatever it is of your neck. So I went the next day. Like, I didn't give a shit. You know, I was like, ah, cool. They say I've got to do this thing. I'll go and get this MRI. And then when they saw the MRI, the, the doctor kind of, the voice guy kind of called me up and went, okay, we've got a problem. There's there You've got uh, growth on your vocal cord. And it was like, whoa, you know, he goes, we need you to have another X-ray or whatever it is, MRI. So then I went and had one and then he's like, okay, we, we, we've, we've got a problem here because it's, it's, you've actually got cancer um, on your thyroid and it's spread to your lungs. And I'm like, like my legs, you know, dropped. You know, I was, I was at my friend's house in Geelong when I found out, like I was all over the phone kind of. Fuck, mate. Where, can I ask, where is your thyroid? That's exactly what I had to say to them. I had no idea. I had to Google it. It is right in the middle of your neck, kind of behind. Well, men have an Adam's apple, but just in the middle of your in the middle of your neck here. You see this giant scar that I've got yeah. right across my neck. Yeah. The thyroid is. Um, women will know about their thyroid, and and because I went on social media and you know told people that I had thyroid cancer, people write back to you and. Like dozens of women would go, oh, yeah, I've had thyroid, not cancer or issues or whatever, because women know about thyroid because they watch their moods because they have menstrual cycles and they go, why am I, why is this different this month or why for six months have I been unbalanced, more unbalanced than whatever a hormonal menstrual thing will do to you? And often it's their thyroids are out of balance, so they take drugs to... Uh, compensate that you know to either up or down it like an overactive but what your thyroid does is it it can it's your major mood controller and controls so much in your body um yeah i had to google it i had no idea what mood my thyroid controller yeah it's for your mood and your metabolism and god i'd have to look it all up like there's just your thyroid's almost your number one yeah it's your number one thing that controls a lot of shit in your body and how your brain works. And like I'd, I'd been very, I mean, I'm anxious and hyper and up and down always have been, yeah. but I, I was out of control without knowing why. And it's because my thyroid was distressed and, and what had happened on the, to get back to the vocal cord thing, basically cancer had grown around the left hand nerve of my vocal cord and stra- sort of strangled it. 
so that had wiped it out. And then when they went in there to to open me up, uh, I'm saying this with a smile on my face, but it's 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 shit. But I sometimes you smile about it. When they went in there to open me up, which is like a seven hour operation with your head hanging off the end like a Pez machine, you know, like oh my god, she took out I think seven nerves in my neck and my jugular vein. My left jugular vein was full of cancer because people, and this is another fact that I, I don't do any Google stuff on my cancer in two years. I barely Google anything except for what is the thyroid and something else. Yeah, I good. refuse to go down the hole. Good. Um, your jugular vein, everyone has two jugular veins and we all think, oh, they're really important. But over 75% of people only, they naturally favor one side of their jugular. So your jugular veins, which I would assume are normal, you will be using one side more often than more than the other. Yeah. So more blood will flow through you. And it's, most people, it's your right side. Right. So she pulled out my left vocal, left uh, jugular vein while she was in there. But yeah. Yeah. How long ago was that? That was November 2021. Two years? Just under two years. Yeah, I found out in October. So it's been a it's been a roller coaster ride. Yeah. Since then. And so since has you know, obviously life's turned on its head. Completely. Completely. Anyone who you know, you you don't want anyone to be touched by cancer and you can think you can think you understand even if you know someone, like if your parent or someone really close is like, but until until it's there it's um it's like nothing else you know it's it's like the moment i found out like everything changes on on a dime your whole world is flipped upside down you know and it can be mine i was told was aggressive but possibly you know i had 30% chance of beating it or 40% chance initially then they said 30 and then the next surgeon goes oh i don't really like doing numbers you know i'm like oh this isn't good um Everything changes in a bad way, but also in a really good way. Like everything lights up. The most minute detail in life lights up. Like I remember walking the beach down White's Beach, you know, on my own when I found out and just like completely tripping out and being, it's it's like an acid trip. It really is, except for me, it's been going for two years and I hope to God it you know, keeps going for years and years and years. It's like an acid trip or a roller coaster ride because the downs are like so low it's like the worst trip you've ever been on but the highs are amazing like i would never i mean i'd rather not have cancer but the things that i've learned and the things that i've seen you know like even i can see the dots on your plant over there they're so interesting to me behind you and i I never noticed that i mean i did notice stuff but you think you notice stuff until you've until someone said your life is really on the line here you don't notice anything. Every grain of sand on that beach down there became important to me. You know, every fucking seagull, everything. You know, it's uh, uh, there's a. I will just say there's a really interesting documentary on a guy called Wilco Johnson, W I L K O Johnson. He's a guitarist in a band called Doctor Feelgood, and he was diagnosed with cancer. He passed away recently. He fought it for like ten years or something. But he describes the same. He died last year and when people die in music it's very triggering if you're uh you know i guess if you know 
you're not a musician, but say, you know, whenever a surfer dies, if, if you've got, if you've got a, a terminal disease, you're like, fuck, when am I next? You know, like, and the Instagram feed is full of, oh, this person's passed this person. And it's like, oh my God, this is too much. And I, could, I couldn't handle it. But when Wilco died, who I loved, I suddenly decided to just lie there and watch this documentary that I knew existed on him. It's called, I think it's called The Ecstasy of Being Wilco Johnson. And he's a tripper, like he's a total tripper, but he talks about when he was diagnosed with cancer, how the world came alive to him. And, that, and I'm like, oh my God, this, is, this guy is explaining it exactly how I feel. And unfortunately, there's thousands of people out there with cancer and, and everyone feels the same thing. Like I've got friends with cancer and acquaintances who've become acquaintances because of, we, we like to, we don't like to talk about it much, but we know, you know, and um, yeah, their life's, life's, life just changes, you know, not, not like having a kid or not like, you know, moving countries no, or anything. No, it's, it's, I think anything, look, I don't know. I only know from my perspective of, you know, diabetes rattled me a bit when I found that one out. Yep. And if I don't take, certain precautions daily then life will be very short yes and so i i think about death daily because if i misjudge something and go to bed there's a possibility i won't wake up yeah right i mean it's heavy right it's pretty heavy so like i I think about it a lot and um and and i just to what you're saying i we get so wrapped up in life and we think it's just going to keep going and it's just not. It's not. And the more we can pull back, I think the blessing in it, if you're going to take one, from me, is just like I try not to sweat the materialistic stuff yeah. and try and love the shit out of those I'm with and around and yeah. and do what I want to fucking do, which unfortunately is just create shit and go surfing. Yeah. Well, that's all I want to do is is make music and go surfing. And that's it. I mean, yeah, apart from hanging out with my lovely partner and my daughter and all that stuff. But yeah. if you really boil it down, and especially um, uh, 10 months ago, they kind of just, they kind of said to me, well, they didn't kind of say to me, they said, we can't cure this. You know, there was a lot, I had a lot of surgeries and, and I've had these weird treatments that no one really knows about, not chemo, radioactive iodine. Sorry, can, do can you, yeah, do you mind? No, I don't mind at all because it's, because it's so full on. It is and so full on. No one knows because I think I told you, you did, a little yeah. bit about it. Okay, so to try and boil it down, like everyone says, oh, have you had chemo? And I'm like, no, I haven't had chemo because the main way they treat thyroid-based cancer, which means mine came from my thyroid, but it's moved into my lungs, a little bit in my head, some in my fucking spine, there's some up into my neck spine, and there's some in my left shoulder and my humerus. You know, it, it, it's going to be crazy inside me. Um, the way they treat thyroid-based cancer is not with chemotherapy first. They, they treat it by radioactive iodine. So what the thyroid does to produce your energy and your... Um, uh, to produce the hormones in your body, because it's a major hormone producer, like I said before, the one mineral they use for it is iodine, which is essentially salt. If you want to put it into a real simple, oh, yeah, it's term. written on the salt packet. Yeah. yeah. So the way they do it is so when you've had, like, I had my thyroid removed, so that means I've got some people who don't have them removed and just have hyperactive or 
whatever, thyroids. They just have medication. It's common as muck, as I said before. Millions of women take this medication. A few blokes I've met too. So I've got no thyroid. So they give you this medication and it takes you months to balance out and get right, you know, like the right levels. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Are you good? So, so this iodine produces the hormone. So what they do is you're on this drug. So essentially I don't have a thyroid. And the drug replicates what the thyroid produces. Like insulin. Yes, like insulin. So they take, they reduce the drug in me or other patients to about half the dose for about two weeks. And I've had this three times. And the third, the, the most recent time, everything fell into place. It's like, oh my God, this what, what this does to you. So now I'm, I'm running on half my thyroid hormones. Then for the last two weeks, they you reduce all of the th- your thyroid hormones, so you become weak, anxious, completely mental, freaked out. Your body is running on nothing because not only do they take the thyroid hormone out, you're not allowed to eat iodine. So you have to eat this bland, tasteless food for two whole weeks. Oh, my God. That's so a fucking long time. It's a long time. And at the end of the two weeks, your body has nothing inside it. They do a test and it's like you've got your iodine levels are so low. That's exactly what we want. So here's the shithouse part to it, which sound, this is the part that freaks people out. So your body's got nothing inside it iodine wise. You go into a hospital and they take you into a a hospital room, which is horrible. And I do have PTSD to do with it about this particular room because it was, the room was made in the eighties and it's, it's like a bunker. You go into a hospital room and they feed you highly, very strong, um, nuclear medicine. So it's a radioactive tablet. They, they wheel it in like they wheel it in, um, on a trolley with a shield in front of it kind of a shield oh and, my and God. The, the, the the administering doctors have remember the like when you go to the dentist they wear the x-ray vests yeah i know yeah. they have kind of these x-ray vests but the funny thing about it is they have like flower patterns on them like the old tuck shop ladies yeah, yeah tops yeah so they have they're, they're covered in their head is still bare but they're wearing gloves and all this kind of shit and they wheel this trolley towards you and it's it's got a uh, it's almost like a Something someone's made it in pottery class, but out of lead, like lead bricks, like diving weights around the side, and a lid, like someone's made in pottery class, but it's made of lead. And they they're standing on the other side of the room, and they're like, take the lid off, and you pull out a little container of tablets, and they look like two panadols. You know, they're worth like over one hundred and twenty grand or something. Take these two panadols, and you put them inside your body. So what that does is your body's got no iodine in it. It's got it's full of it's full of radiation. And it's also full of iodine, these tablets. So your body's crying out for iodine. And as soon as it gets the iodine, it runs to all of the places where the tumours are. That's how it works. And you're like holding your head now. I'm watching you like hold your head going, oh my fucking God. So it races to the spots in your body where all the tumours are and essentially takes the poison nuclear waste, nuclear, not nuclear waste, yeah, nuclear yeah, medicine yeah. to those spots and sits there on those spots for six months in theory you know, um, eating away at it and reducing it. But the first, and oh, so here's the here's the kicker: 
is you're at a super low mental state by this point. Yeah, like yeah. I've never been madder in my life, and I'm mad. They <laughs> lock the door on you for four days. Oh my fucking and God. feed you like slop. You know, because it's all supposed to be like salt free. The second time round, I, I in fact the first time round, I called a friend and said, "You got to fucking make me some food." Like this is, you know, unbear- they they lock the door. And so, what are you doing to pass time? Going insane, like absolutely insane. Because you like the last time I was in there was the worst. But you literally go into, I, you pace the floor, you pace the room. You know, you can't... Because um, you're like, is this working? Is it not working? Yeah. yeah. I, you, know, right, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm not only am I confronted by my mortality yeah. already yeah. for months and months and months and having gone through a few operations, you're locked in a box and it's a it's a real ugly box too. And you when know? you're in that frame of mind, even if you have entertainment like Netflix, oh, nothing's interesting. Man, and the last time I was in there, I was in there for four days. I struggled to watch one show, read about 10 pages of a book, yeah, and that's about it. Like, I just paced the room yeah, yeah. for four days in a row, like a f- complete psycho, you know? <laughs> and and they they barely check in on you because they sort of can't because you're radioactive. So the idea is you sort of, you lie there and you, you let this radioactive waste go inside your body. Not waste. I don't know why I use the word waste. I think I probably watch too much Simpsons. Um, <laughs> the thing's bouncing. Yeah, across, yeah. It's in your body for like 24 hours and then they're like, right, now you need to shit and piss out all of the waste. So they give you laxatives and whatever because the faster you can get it out, the waste, the excess, the quicker you can get out of that room. Each time I've been out in four days, which is three nights, and that's hell. But I recently found out that some people are in there for like two weeks. Oh and they're probably God. elderly citizens too, mm. you know, because I'm, I'm young, you know, I'm a young cancer guy, you know, a lot of, you know, so yeah. So basically you're just locked in this room. And I mean, I, I don't think I can do the full, full dose again, because you're only allowed to have up to 600 units of this nuclear waste in you. <laughs> waste, I don't know why it's I keep okay. calling it that. <laughs> this it works for the yeah. visual. <laughs> um, and then... After I've, you know, I'm up to like about 570 or something like that. So if once you have more, then you probably start bulging, you know, bits of your face. Don't, yeah, you, know, you like, look like the fish in the symptoms. Yeah, they look yeah. like the fish in the symptoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then once you you get out of this room, like they t- test you with a Geiger counter. They stand at the other side of the room and they go, stand over there against the wall, you know. They're kind of nice about it. And the old Geiger counter. And they go, okay, you're cool to go. But then when you go... You can't can't see anyone. Like you, you know, I can. You can be in a car for someone, but you have to sit diagonal to them when you get a lift home from hospital, and then you have to be left alone for five to seven days because you are still radioactive. So I would. I mean, the last time I came down here to Jack and was in my caravan, and I freaked out. You know, like because you've been a prisoner, and and it it messes with you. Like I was just driving around the beach till. On your own, you're not seeing people till nine o'clock at night because I was too scared to go to the bathroom in my in my Cause place it's communal. No, because no, I had my own bathroom oh. um, in the caravan. Um, I just felt locked in. You yeah, know, I felt yeah. you know, I was. It's very traumatic. It's a very traumatic thing. You know, it's and I ended up speaking to the because I got shitty. You know, I got real shitty this third time I'd been through it, yeah. and it takes months to recover from as well. And I ended up speaking to the head of the department and he understands. And he said, oh, the room's bad. And I'm like, it's fucking bad. You know, this, this medicine is, it's very common, but no one knows about it. That's why I'm happy to talk about it. 
but they need to upgrade the room. And, you know, I fucking balled him like out. The process is brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. And no one tells you that you're going to lose your mind. They just go, oh, you go off your hormones, you don't eat salt for two weeks, and we put you in a room for four days. You, it, I've never been more insane. Never. You know? So, yeah, and I would come down here and I'd have to drive around here till 9 o'clock at night when I was free from the room for a week because I was too scared to go to sleep or too scared to be in my caravan or too scared to be inside. Um, trauma. Yes. Have you done any work around it yeah. since leaving? Not since, a little bit since leaving, yeah. I've, been, I do, I've done, I did trauma work to do with my childhood. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, so, Bef- so have I. Before, before, actually during COVID I did heavy I just like decided to really knuckle down with my psych at the time and yeah. do childhood trauma stuff. But then when the cancer came on, it was like, oh, I'm not explaining this to my other psych. But I've had, you know, the, the cancer psychs are okay. I've got a guy who's a hypnotherapist. He's a hypnotherapist and a psychotherapist who's amazing. Um, but there's a lot of trauma to do with it. I mean... Yeah, I was going to bring it up because it's like, yeah, I, I've got a lady that specialises in trauma. I'll tell you, I can't remember. I won't say her name on yeah. here, but like, well, you can we can exchange details. Yeah, and it's been quite oh good profound. Yeah, for I need me. to do a bit more work. Yeah, because I'm clearly well. I'm not saying yeah for you, but it's like it's, oh, there is good stuff out there. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. There is, and a lot of people go through all sorts of trauma too. I'm not. You know, I'm telling you my story, but yeah. and it's not just people with cancer or diabetes or yes, people with chronic illness and. I don't know. I think the, the world's a pretty crazy place. Oh, completely. Yeah. 100%. Which I always knew, and then it just got 10 times crazier. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you get a cancer diagnosis. And then and have to go in the room. Yeah. And then I don't know whether... I Did I mention it before? Anyway, last August they said, we can't cure this, but we can hopefully add time to you by giving you another drug. So I'm taking an immunotherapy tablet that destroys you in many ways. But... um. But yeah, so each time I've been in there, and this is why you appreciate things more, obviously, especially Torquay, because it's always been like, it's never been my permanent home, but it's always been the home in my heart. Mm. I would, you know, I had operations in town, like when they removed all the shit out of my neck. And then after the first radioactive iodine, my lymph node in the middle of my chest soaked up too much of the, the good medicine. So they... They gave me an operation to take out my lymph node in my chest and at the same time took out a small wedge, so they tell me, of lung, where there was a bit of a tumour down there. So each time I've been through that, you know, I would recuperate up in town for a week or two, just like completely edgy to be here, and then come down here and literally like wade into the water at Cozy Corner, barely able to move, you know, and just float in the water and... You know, when I had my lung, you know, like I, I could do three strokes of breaststroke. And I was like, oh, geez, that was heavy, man. Came back the next day, you know, I did say five strokes. And then, you know, within a week or two, I was like swimming underwater and holding holding my breath. And then I took my daughter surfing on her softboard and I caught a wave on my guts. And I was like, oh, that's the best whitewater wave I've ever had in my whole life. So Cozy Corner is a very... I, I know to a lot of people down here, it's a special place. It is a special place. It's yeah. a real special place. Yeah. But to, it, it, that's my, I mean, apart from how beautiful it is and other experiences that I've had there. I just hate you can't take the dog there. 
Oh right, yeah. People seem to anyway. Don't yeah, they? they do anyway. But like, yeah, yeah, I used to live in that in that corner for a little while, and it was just so nice to be right there. Yeah. And just, it's, just... it's my favorite place, even though I love all of the surf beaches around here. Yeah, you know the surf's epic. Well, it's, and it's uh, protected a lot. Yeah, prevailing southwest. It's just you know, it's just always like, oh, it's just beautiful, and the the old groins. It's, it's yeah, the wooden bit. It's yeah. super postcard stuff. Yeah, but that was my recovery zone. You know, my goal was to get out of hospital wherever it was. Get in the car, come down here, and just throw myself in the water there, and rebuild. I guess, try and learn to swim again, which I've done a bunch of times. And how how are you feeling now? Oh, okay. Kind of scared, and you know, my surfing's really did one of the side effects of this drug that I'm on, the immunotherapy drug, is um, fatigue. Yeah. And I've never been. I mean, I've been surfing for 35 years. I've never been like a hot surfer or anything. You know, I'm just one of those people that's an immediate, intermediate surfer. Mm, Just someone out there having fun. Oh, yeah, totally. I have good days. I'd hate to see how those days look on video, but when you think you're ripping, you know, you're like, oh, my God, that was the best surf ever. But if you watched it, you know, you'd be shit. But when you think you're ripping, and I can have those days, but then now lately, I, I mean, I... If there's people around here, I assume most of them listen. I'd be the guy on a surfboard who one day, one wave is surfing well and the next one I'm just on my knees because I can't, I just run out of energy, you know. And I had a had a really cool moment with Corey Graham because he did a, a podcast on the Surf Splendor a while ago. I don't know him very well. He's such a good guy. Yeah, yeah. and um, he sort of knew just via Instagram what was going on with me and, and I'd surf Winky. He's going, what the fuck are you doing out here? You've just been locked in this room for you know, the week, all this treatment that you've just had. And, and I'd been out at Wiki Pop and I just couldn't even get up, but I was just catching them on my guts and, you know, I got like two or three and then was like exhausted. But because um, he had to rebuild after a back thing, you know. So that's how I look at it is just kind of rebuilding. rebuilding. Uh, how am I now? I'm waiting on, uh, you have a big scan every three months. So I'm waiting on my results on that to see whether the drug that I'm on, which can't cure me, but it might slow and it might um, might slow and it might shrink some of the tumours. And it, that was working last December. So whether it's working now, I'll, I'll find out in a couple of weeks. You look well. Well, that's what everyone says, which is weird. You've just been um, working away. Yes, yes. And obviously that's, you know, quite, Tax- I would have thought, exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I shouldn't be working, but I kind of... I mean, you know, when I was diagnosed on my friends, mainly in music or whatever, they did a GoFundMe for me, which which allowed, which gave me 18 months of money. It was a lot of money, you know, and it was it was hard to accept, but I did because I had no choice. Yeah, you know. Um, so last year, I mean, I think, I mean, I know I'm, you know, kind of mad to be doing it because in August when they said we can't cure you, that that's like saying. You know, that's like saying you're stage four cancer. So, and I, I've only really started saying stage four out loud over the last few weeks. You know, it's taken me a long time to just sort of accept it as a thing. Um, uh, so what my point is, is that they've told me that this drug is working currently and could keep working for an infinite amount of time. It could be months, years, they don't know. They've told me that I'm going to keep living. So I need to believe that I'm going to live because there's 
there's so much negative thought in your in your mind when you have a, a terminal cancer but you have to override it somehow because if you let it overtake you then you've got no chance none you know you have to attack the world um so. a friend an old teacher of mine is going through a similar thing at the moment uh gary ramsey and he's always doing a talk to instagram yep i clicked clicked on it the other day and he's always got very positive things to say and he's talking about the power of encouragement mm-hmm. and how encouragement is like uh it's like an in, in, angelic word encouragement is and as opposed to discouragement which is quite an, an evil kind of yeah. thing and he's like you know i just a thriving and what's keeping me he's like like he's blown all the numbers that you're talking about out of the water yep. and he says it's through an encouragement and an encouraging frame of mind you know the power of the just power of the, the yeah you know just going i'm only going to absorb into the positive here and uh, which isn't easy no fuck no 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 uh, i i'll definitely show you his insta yeah. he's like a fucking he's a jet he's a really nice i guy. like those people yeah, yeah me too i'm really like they're like like the author tim baker who i met a long time ago, yeah. but you know he's had prostate cancer and he's been stage four for seven years, and he's still still going, and he's just doing that stuff. Um, so to, yeah, I've got I do have a Tim Baker story, but um, to go to work, I, w- I worked as a tour manager, yeah, for the last fifteen years as well. So I just did a tour with. Um, and you've worked with amazing people. I've worked with amazing people. I've worked with the most amazing bands. Some of them just epic like just i mean i forget you know but i have had i've been really lucky i mean not lucky i mean i i'm not a confident person but i guess i was good at my job so but i would always get cool bands you know was get cool bands or comedians i work with a lot of comedians now which is where i'm sitting right now so yeah for 15 years i started off as a guitar tech like a roadie and then i wasn't that good at that but um I'm better at being a tour manager, which means, you know, it's a lot of work. And I just did a big tour with an American comedian guy called Joe Coy who does stadiums and all that stuff. So I just did 19 days. So my point being is like, should I be working? Everyone's like, you shouldn't be working, Dave. You should just be enjoying your life, you know. But I'm like, what if I live for 10 years, you know? Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be on Centrelink because it's 300 and something dollars a week or whatever. I want to earn a little bit of money. So I'm do- but it was really hard. I've done two tours this year. One, which was two weeks straight out of my treatment, and it was with the loveliest bunch of guys from Ireland, and they knew what I was going through, and it was hard. And then this one here was 19 days, and then um, in July I'm working again, which, which I'm really lucky. I'm working with John Cleese for his next Australian tour. and um, John Cleese? Yeah. See? Bolly Towers. I get I get the good one. Shut up. He yeah, yeah. is like that dude. Have you ever seen him? I mean, of course you would have, but someone sent me something of him giving a speech. That guy is a fucking phenomenal human being. He like, is thinker. a phenomenal human. I've done, I've spent three three months of my life with that guy. I did my first tour, which I was petrified about. I did for two months with him, and then we did another month a few years ago. And he's he's a beautiful guy. He, yeah. You know, people go, "Oh, John Cleese is he grumpy? Whatever." He just doesn't suffer fools. He doesn't. He's smart. But for me, and I was trying to explain to someone the other day, they were like, "God, I can't remember who it was." It was only a few days ago. They didn't know who John Cleese was, and I'm going, 
this guy and the Monty Pythons, they were the Beatles of comedy. 100%. Before that, before Monty Python, there was nothing, you know, like really. They reinvented the same as the Beatles and Rolling Stones twisted rock and roll. That's what they did to comedy. He, Virginia sent me a YouTube of him talking on a topic and I don't remember what it was, but I remember I was watching it daily for inspiration for a little while and it was just him talking. Yeah. It wasn't an act. He's, he's highly intelligent. Yeah. Wow. That's cool, man. That's cool. It When's it cool. coming out? Uh, July. There's a, there's a show at Costa. Next month. Yeah. There's a show at Costa. Is it Costa Hall in Geelong? Yeah. Oh. I think it's called, this tour is called the, the late, an evening with the late John Cleese. He keeps, you know. Taking the piss out of his life as if he's going to... I think the last one was called The Last... This will be the last tour before I die or like, something like, like that. Like the John Farnham piss take or something. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> anyway, so I do that, but then I won't work until... I might do a couple a week in November and then I won't work. Whereas in the past, tour managers, road crew, we just work. You know, I would, I would work 200, 250 days a year. Not always away on the road, but it, there's a lot of homework... Yeah, so into, can I just ask yeah. that if you're a tour manager, you organise every port of call and what happens in between? Sort of. Uh, a promoter organises the shows, mm. so they book the hall, the venues, essentially, mm. and then they have a person that they contact, which in this case is me, and I work through either on my own but often with someone in their office. I work through the flights, uh the hotels, the cars, how everyone moves around. Yeah, but that to also, and from. In, yeah, to and from airports, the venues, day to day. That also means you have to employ drivers. You do the catering at the venue, the dressing rooms. I used to do the production, which was the lighting and the PA and stuff. But now that I've got the biggest shows, I have a great friend, and he's he's like way up there. He's been around forever. He's a lovely person, but he does the production side, and and I just look after the artist. And then you have to be with them kind of all day, every day, and get them to and from the venue and back from the venue, and make sure when they get there that the that the M and M's are sorted into their correct colours and whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, all, oh, oh, yeah. It's pretty. It's really heavy. And do you and have I to organise s- all the drugs and and the, the after parties? And I'm joking. I'm well, joking, but to a degree. To a degree. Yeah. But mm. I never. I always. I was always strong enough to not really. You know, like, yes, I have in the past mm. had to organise that kind of stuff, but I was always strong enough to an artist to go, you know what, you've been around the world a lot and you've scored drugs in more places than I have, so yes. get your own yeah. fucking drugs. Yeah, fend for yourself. Yeah, are you got any weed? Where do we get weed from? It's like, well, mm. you know more than I do, you know, just put put a word out to your friends and whatever. But I have done that in the past, but most people are reasonably professional. Yeah, you know. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it seems like the the landscape has changed this considerably in the last ten to fifteen. Yeah, it's a job, and they make big money out of it. Even the worst scuzzy rock and roll bands, and I don't know them personally, but you would say someone like, let's just take an example, like King Gizzard and Lizard Wizard. You think like Stoner Rock, Psychedelic, or whatever. Those guys are all doing a job and making really good money from their concerts. Now, not everyone can make that really good money, but as an example, and I've never toured with them, but even the Tame Impala guys who I would see at festivals around and around. If you don't show up for your job, yeah, yeah, and you do a, or you do a bad set mm. or you just you go off the rails, then people stop coming to see you mm. and you lose your money. It's a job, you know. I don't know. No, no, I get it. I get it. Um, yeah, it's a job. Oh, it took me a while to figure that out. Yeah, 
it is a job, which is, and you know, that's why when you do a set or whatever, you know, when you're putting your music together, you put it together in an order that entertains the crowd or has an ebb and a flow. And when you see a band, you're like, oh, I know they're going to say this now. You know, they get this stage stick. Comedians are different. Comedians I prefer nowadays because it's, it's a lot of work, but it's different work. It's not so much you're not in the venue till like one or two in the morning, you're out because of my tiredness. I like to get out. And I and I fell into the thing of doing comedians a while ago with, I did some smaller ones and then I was given John Cleese by the promoter and I was like terrified, you know. But I've, I've done him and um, Bill Burr, who's one yeah, of my We favorites. spoke about Bill Burr, didn't yeah, we? I don't know. but Yeah, well, I think we messaged about him. Probably. Because I was like, I can't remember why, but I love Bill Burr. His tour that I did was, and he's a, he's a beautiful guy. Yeah. He's a really beautiful guy. Doesn't suffer fools either, I'll take does it. Not. <laughs> he does not. He does not. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the point of that? I don't know. So I am working yes. occasionally. I'm definitely part-time. People seem happy, you know, that I bump into out on the road to see me and, you know, they're going, how are you doing? You're going, all right. I'll say, well, I'm doing it, you know. so. And you're playing music. I'm playing music. Yeah, got the band back together, which is, you know, something – that I never thought I would do because when I worked with music, I just I didn't really want a part of it. Like I barely picked up my guitar in ten years, and then it was weird. The moment that they sort of told me that it was incurable, I just felt this huge urge to. I wanted to catalogue all of my songs for my daughter mainly, just to get everything in the one place for her, and that turned into um, a project. And it's like, oh, my God, I've been in all these, you know, crappy bands or recorded with friends and done all these things. Oh, there's a lot of stuff to put together here. And then I started playing guitar again and I was talking to the band, the double agents, you know, and it's like, oh, I want to do this compilation. We've all remained friends. We stopped playing 14 years ago or something. We've all remained amazing friends, you know. And um, the other singer in the band, Kim, she lost her husband through cancer two or three years ago now. We've, we've just all been mates. You know, the band fell apart, but really just because life, we grew up and, mm. you know, we didn't want to mm-hmm. chase around the globe or whatever. Um, uh, what's the point of that? So... Were you working, you're back playing music and you didn't yeah, think you were going to play music again. Yeah, and I wanted to... And I, I think I said to the band, oh, do we want to get this compilation together? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. And, I, you know, me being... And I went, oh, there's no pressure to play a show, but me being me is like, oh, I really want to do a fucking show. You know, I really do. You know, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, that could be cool. You know, so so we're doing that, but we've put together a compilation record. And I, I was also, I had a jam with a couple of other people that was fun, but it, I missed I missed my band. You yeah, know, like yeah, we were yeah. a band for eight years and the drummer and I were in a band for about the same amount of time before that. So, and I, and I just went, oh, my God, I've got this really great band that that fits around me and we all fit around each other. I don't think... We could play with other people, and some of them do, but we're not musician musicians. Well, three of us aren't really, you know. Um, we we can. It's not that we can only play with each other, but we definitely have our thing. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? You guys have uh, what do you call it? There's a synchronicity yeah. to you all. It's yeah. like you know each other well enough. You've yeah. been through the. Sh- you we can, have. We you, tra- you know. We we yeah. went around and we we played around the traps and we, you know, we traveled together and we went through you know, deaths together and addictions together and mental health together and everything, you know. So now, yeah, I was like, oh, my God, I've got this band. So now we're, you know, we're, we're, we've just put out a compilation record, but we're also, I'm like, I'm writing songs like I've never 
really written them before. I still find it hard to finish them, but... Have you got gigs coming out? Yeah. Oh. yeah well, we've just got one on July the 14th at the uh, Northcote Social Club. July 14th, Northcote Social Club. Yep, the double agents. And you can get our stuff on... Ba- the, the record is called Best Bits So Far, and it's on Bandcamp. And in... I want to come to that. Well, you should. It's going to be fun, you know? It's, it's a fun rock and roll show, you know? Loud. Yeah, great. Sloppy. Just play it loud. Bit of country. <laughs> bit of garage rock. Awesome. You know? Yeah. We just have fun, you know? But we're not, you know, we're not, we're not sort of guitars in the air. We don't sort of do... Yeah, just get we're down not a show-off the band. You know, we, we kind of like going back to the Great Britain Hotel. It was literally just about... We don't stare at the floor, but it was literally... You don't turn your back on the audience. No. So. <laughs> but it, it, we're not a show band. Yeah. You yeah. know, we just play. Yeah. We're like a pub band, you know, so... I'm going to make it my effort to come. Good man. Double agents. Butters. Yeah. yeah. Are we there? I think so. No, we're not. No, we're not. Do you know why we're not? Please tell me. Because we haven't talked about surfing. I know. The love of both of our lives. Yes. Yeah. The the mistress in the corner never got a mention. Yeah. No. Barely. I think um, I touched on it. But So when you were young, yes. uh, tell me, I you know, because I, I didn't grow up... Uh, you know, till I was 13 in Geelong, which in turn made me fall in love with this coastline, even though yeah. we had a place on the peninsula. But, uh, and I remember the things that made me fall in love with surfing. What was it that when you, when you saw it and you're like, fucking that? I don't, I don't know. You don't but know. it was your classic sort of uh, either weekends with every second weekend with my dad, or he was like a water guy. He's not anymore, but he was the beach guy, you know. Your Tad, dad or stepdad? My dad, yeah. my dad. And, um, uh, holidays down at Point Leo, yeah, that sort of stuff. But but when I was a kid, about ten years old, my my stepdad and my mum befriended um, a family called the Lampards, who run who ran at the time Kumbala Park, which is a horse riding academy in Wallington, because my family was all into horse riding. So we would go down there every second weekend and stay in a caravan next to the Lampards' house. And there was three brothers. There was Warren, who was the oldest, Murray, who was the middle, and Cameron Lampard, who was the youngest. And he's younger than me. He's my sister's age. But all of these brothers were into horse riding heavily. But Cameron was... Oh, they were all into surfing as well. And um, you, you know Cameron Lampard yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, You know, like 13th Beach. I, I don't know the title to put on him because we're not close. We're in touch. But yeah, we, yeah. We, we spent weekends together growing up at Wallington. And then they... We got they'd always go down the beach and then their brothers or a cousin came once, but their brothers would drag us out surfing at 13th. You know, I could barely even surf or whatever, and it was massive, you know, like classic when they just drag you out. And um, then we would stay down at Brimley because they had a caravan. Oh, the Devil's Playground. Yeah, the Devil's Playground. <laughs> it was me and Cam and a couple of other local guys, uh, Ash King and I think Paul Crap. Oh, yeah, the Craps, yeah. The Crap Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they're a small army. Yeah. And, you know, then I moved off to town and we sort of drifted apart. But that's really where the bug, I think, completely kicked in. And then when I got my license, I was somehow drawn to Phillip Island due to friends down there. A guy I went to high school with called Adrian Mayer, who's a great surfer, still lives down there. Spent a lot of time on Phillip Island. Oh, Island's unreal. And then I moved after the rock and roll thing. I tried to escape the drugs of Melbourne and moved down to the peninsula and... Did they find you down there or did you, oh, did you manage bit, to escape? No, I managed to escape. <laughs> um, 
and actually started up a record store in Rye. Did you? Yeah, yeah. We had a record store, me and Kim, who is in the band with me, and we used to be partners. We had a record store in Rye for five years from, I think, 1999 to 2004. Um, but, yeah, surfing, I don't know what it is about it. It's just, like I just described myself before, like I've been doing it for so long, but and I still feel quite intermediate, and you have your good days and your bad, but I've become not just since... It's definitely been in the last... Every year that I get older, I just get more and more addicted to it. I, it's, and I know I'm not alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just had a quick one before you came over and I got back and I was just like to Virginia, I don't know what it is, but it wasn't that good today. I had a fucking ball, chatted to a whole lot of people. Yeah. You know, it's part of, that part of it is to the connection. Yes. Getting out of the house, having a yak. Yeah. Don't know who you're going to bump into. Yeah. Yeah, I, I the the it's so different that little world to anything else that we're plugged into. Yeah. You're in the water, it's undulated, it's like out of control. You're not in control. You're not in control at all. And I often find like you know, we spoke before about talking to therapists or whatever. When you're out there at the back, and this is not whether you have any illness or not, like your mind still races when you're at the back and when you're paddling out and you have anxiety before you paddle out and <laughs> you can sit out the back and it's beautiful and epic and you're seeing all these birds or dolphins or whatever, but your mind's still racing. The only time in my whole life when I don't think about anything is when you're actually riding a wave mm. and that's 10 seconds or 15 seconds or whatever it might be, unless you're in Noosa, it's 30 seconds mm. or whatever. But that's the only, that's that's the escape for me, and I guess for everyone else too, because we you don't realise it, but that's the it's the money shot of surfing. The rest is a beautiful experience around it, and you're outside and you're talking to people or you're watching the sun come up or down or whatever. But for me, it's the sort of escape, and you can get it even if you're just riding in on your belly. Oh yeah, you know? totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. As long as you're moving in the water, and I think that's when I was. When I hopped on my daughter's softboard after one of the operations, you know, and just was going along on my guts on this pink softboard, it was just one of the best moments I've had in my life, you know. But yeah. But there's a whole, like, sorry, I'm going to drill in more, man. Like, there's like, you're just talking about, you know, Corey, Graham, you know, and you've got your relationship with shapers and you can talk about, you know, how, you know, you've got boards from 5'5 to 12 foot and different concaves and bottom contours and fins and different ways around the world and going traveling here and that culture and that you know it's just it doesn't stop there's it's like a well it's endless it's endless yeah and you can you could just walk you know i always it's like walk the earth you know just been like I, i was lucky i had a guy called steve friedman who's a shaper over on the peninsula on cape shank he kind of befriended me and you know tried to take me under his wing, but I was a bit I was a bit kind of loose to be taken under anyone's wing. But he really pushed me um, into surfing. He could see that was when I moved to the peninsula, and a couple of other guys down there they could see that that the music and the rock and roll and the drugs or whatever was kind of taking over, and put those kind of guys, you know, made me realise that you just need to paddle out. And get your shit together, you know. Not to say any of those people are ultra clean living human beings, but you know that they knew that I was not in good shape, you know. So they kind of helped me out. And Steve, 
I was I was a kneeboarder for a long time. That's how I I started surfing. Then I got plantar fasciitis in my feet. Yeah. So I was a kneeboarder for I don't know eight years or something like that. And then Friedman's like, well, your feet are sort of okay now, so you need to stand up, dude. And he's American, you know. He's like, yeah, stand up, man. And then he, you know, got me a longboard, and you know, that was. And then yeah, then I got longboards, and then I was into longboarding, and now I'm sort of working my way down. So I've like gone back backwards. You can hold both. I, I, oh, I have three boards in my car, a 9.6, a 7.6, which I adore, and a 6.8. Yeah. And that's that's kind of all you need. Oh, actually, you know, I've seen your pile of boards. You, you want more, but you really only need... Oh, there's ones going away. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, actually, I could have more, but I, I find it hard to choose with... Th- I don't find it hard to choose with three. I, I don't ride the longboard much anymore, but I find it hard to choose between two boards. Yeah. So I don't know how. There was a time when I had five boards in my car. I'm driving around. I'm going. Who do you think you are? <laughs> You're not very good. But no, they're like golf clubs. They are like golf clubs. <laughs> but I found it hard choosing between five boards, so I, I, I sold a couple and narrowed it down to three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want more. Like of I want course. a Corey board, and yeah, I want yeah. you know I want all these things. I want a garage like, full. When am, when am I going to? How am I going to choose? Like, I find it hard enough to choose what wetsuit you're going to put on. Yeah. You know, is it four? Is it four? Do I need the booties? Yeah, what are you in? Are you wearing a three-two? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Oh, no booties. What? Yeah. <laughs> I know. So. It's so good. It really is. I, I, but I've been, I've been saying this to Virginia for, like, I keep banging on. I love longboarding. I yeah. don't do it very often. But it's just such a nice tool to have when... It's something different to do. Yeah. It's so graceful and it's just... It's, I don't just think I'm graceful at it. That's gliding. Fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, I love it when it's when it's small, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've become the classic... What's the age demographic for a Devon Howard fan? Probably a classic 40 to 60-year-old male who just... I wouldn't say I worship at the altar of Devon Howard, but the guy can surf and his philosophies on surfing are amazing and what board to ride. You know, like you ride a longboard at a certain height and your mid-length thing comes in over that. So I like my longboards when it's, you know, one to two feet now. Mm. I mean, I used to ride mm. them in everything because mm. that's all I rode. You know, but then, then I, you know, I'm the classic guy who discovered mid-lengths like everyone did or has, and I fucking love it, you know. A, a twin fin mid-length? I don't have a twin fin mid-length. They despite, seem to be quite des- in vogue at the moment. Despite the you know all the Torrin Martin video clips that <laughs> I've watched, dude, he was here. I saw a picture because I was away that for Sunday, that big Monday, swell. Yeah. yeah, and so I surfed. Yeah, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and he, he was out every time I was out there on the and eight foot board. Yeah, yeah, on that board. But I say I'd surf two hours and I'd be gassed, and that's all, that's enough. I'm, yeah. I'm good. He was out all day. I can't believe how fit that guy he was. He must be so fit. Like all day yep. on the reef, like a professional. <laughs> you know, like, That's what he is. I, mean, I know, but I just couldn't believe. Like it was, it, it was me, huge. It was, it was big and yeah. it was like gassy. Like it took the energy out of me. Yeah. Um, by the end of the surf, I was like, I don't have any more. i got nothing. He does that all the time. All the time. You know. It was a trip. He just... Travels around and he doesn't seem afraid of size. No, 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 whatsoever. No, like no, he wasn't. No, <laughs> like I, I saw him. Uh, I was, you know, I never paddle around the button when it's that big. Oh, that's a, I did actually. That day. <laughs> I think on the Monday I didn't. Yeah, but the Sunday I did. 
and I nearly got clipped. Anyway, I hate, that's the feeling I hate, that anxiety. Yeah. But uh, Torrin on the Monday was paddling off the beach as well and I, uh, I looked across at him and I, I was, he just did the run around, you know, and it was like eight, proper eight foot and he just did the run around. Like, it must be weird to be a surfer that everyone looks at, like everyone, like to be that guy. Like I find it weird doing a gig, say, in front of 150, 200 people and being the guy on stage and then when you finish the gig, you go out in the crowd and everyone sort of looks at you and you're like... <laughs> I feel really awkward about that. Imagine being like a superstar surfer. Like everyone knows who that guy is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a cut above. Yeah. He's just, he's a freak. You yeah. know, there's a handful of freaks in the world of surfing at the moment. There's a lot of great men and women surfers, but he's, he's got something. So I can't imagine, I don't know how he would go, even just looking across at you, some random guy looking at him. Like I would struggle and I've met like so many famous people, but if I had to meet him, I would be like, I don't know. I think I'd probably, I wouldn't know what to say really, but I'm sure he's probably pretty cruisy. But, he was super nice. I chatted to yeah. him a couple of times. He'd probably be like, who's this dude that keeps saying it? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, shut up. See, everyone knows who you are, Don. <laughs> you know. um, I was thinking that though, like uh, the other day when someone hits a certain level of fame, how many faces and how many people they meet and you must meet so many nice, amazing people, but you, your life is so full. You don't have time for all these amazing people. Like being able to just, yeah, you know, it must be I that's mean, why it's they, a first-world problem. I know. <laughs> that's why they have personal assistants. That's why they have people like tour managers like me, you know, to filter out or yeah, whatever. Right. But, but, you know, most most genuine people, you know, remember people. But uh, I don't know if Torrens are going to remember you next week. No, he's not remembering me, no. Can I tell you my Tim Baker story? Yes, sir. Okay, yes, cool. Go, so, yeah. so what happened um, was must have been 1990 or 1991. I just had my license and I was still excited because I'd been driven down the Bells Hill before. That's the thing when you get your license is that bell. I keep telling my daughter, it's like one day, six years' time, you're going to drive this hill and it's going to like blow your mind, which it did. Anyway, so a friend of mine called Tracy Hutchison, she used to be a Triple J announcer. That's how I met her. And uh, she's a friend of Pam Burridge's. So she said, you want to come down to Bells with me? And it was probably 19, I'd say 1990 or 91, just when I got my license. And because um, it was before I was super immersed into the music, I remember. So that's how I'm sort of dating it. She goes, you want to come down to Bells with me for the day? It's like, sure, watch the contest. So I went down there with her and she knows everyone because she's Sydney and she she introduced me to Tim Baker, who at the time was the Pam editor Burridge. of... Yeah, she knows Pam. She, oh, no, sorry, you weren't with Pam. You were with... I was with my friend Tracy. Tracy, who was yeah. one of Pam's friends. And okay, yeah. I met Pauline Mensah and, and I met Tim Baker. And Tracy, you know, she's not a party. She goes, oh, I'm going to go, you know. Do you want to stay here? And Tim's got like going, do you drive, Dave? I'm like, yeah. He goes, do you want to be our driver? And I'm like, yeah, super young. I'm like, yeah, sure. He goes, you want you want, you want to test out the hire car? I've gone, yeah, sure. Okay, no worries. And, he, and they were parked over, you know, the paddock where everyone parks? Yeah. It was relatively... And him and a few other guys just around there. We just wanted to see see what you can do, you know. See, and he just had me like doing donuts and stuff in the car park. <laughs> and then, so good. and then he's like, "Yeah, no worries," you know. And he took took me. He's, you can drive us around for the night, you know. And I drove him, you know. And this like I was a kid, you know, yeah. and around like you know Tom Carroll was there and Brad Gerling and all these people, you know. And I drove them around and I took them to the pub and that was the the epic days of the um the Torquay kind of wild, you know, bells kind of post surf party type stuff and i was just like their driver for the night and then i think i just fucked off in the end and just left them to it and never spoke to them again or anything and then i then i drifted off more into the music world but that was my kind of one 
sort of to me yeah, like yeah. A, a real epic experience at the bells contest like being there the drive there was all these pro surfers in the car i can't remember who the hell they were all i can remember is tim baker but you know it's like all piled into the back of this little toyota corolla that they and they're getting to do burnouts yeah like, it was all mud yeah. all muddy kind of stuff like that it was you know it's wake up the next day and we're, whoa did that just happen yeah anyway there's my tim baker story so that, that's it. a good way to wrap it up because he's inspirational to me yeah just the way he's still kicking on and his positive attitude through cancer is really cool so yeah butters yeah thank you thanks again yeah man. we'll finish it now awesome okay cheers Well, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Dave Butterworth. Butters, thank you so much for coming over and being so open and honest and vulnerable and cool and, and, and yeah, man, just being real. I, I just I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I hope I see you soon. Um, to everybody else out there in the world, I hope this finds you well. Hope this finds you enjoying the day. Um, you know, as I, as I look out the window, it's a, it's a cool blue winter's afternoon. Um, winter is certainly upon us. But, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm trying to embrace this one. I really am. Like, usually I fucking hate winter. Um, but this winter is just like, it just... They come and go. Summer was just too quick and too non-existent and winter is going to be too non It's flying by. You just got to embrace it. Hot or cold? I want it hot, but you got to embrace the cold. I'll shut up. Hope you're well. See you next time. Adios. Adios.